0: You again this morning. I think it's some years since we were last here, uh, but nonetheless, we're going to make up for lost time over these next couple of weeks. You know, mums and grandmas might have soft hearts, but they're certainly not a pushover. I read a story a number of years ago that just underscores the truth of that. In November 2019, a man broke into the house of 82-year-old Willie Murphy in Rochester, New York. Willie lived alone, and the villain was bent on some easy pickings, or so he thought, but he'd chosen the wrong house because the octogenarian was actually a champion bodybuilder who set about her intruder with a kitchen table. When that broke, she continued beating him with its metal legs. And when he finally went down, she jumped on him and squirted shampoo in his face. (laughs) Willie, who can bench press 225 pounds, then took the kitchen broom to him. Finally, the law showed up. Not so much to arrest the would-be thief, but rather to rescue him. And instead of taking him to the police station in a cruiser, they ended up taking him to the hospital in an ambulance. That actually reminds me of another story of another grandma. This time, she came back home from the Bible study, not the gym. And she found another intruder in her house, rifling through her possessions. On this occasion, though, She raised her Bible and shouted out, Acts 2, 38. At which the thief stopped what he was doing, fell to his knees, raised his arms in the air, and surrendered. The old lady, it seems, was more concerned with his soul than with her few paltry possessions. Because she quoted the reference to the scripture that says, Repent and be baptized. Eventually, the police arrived, and as they arrested him, the bemused sergeant said, How come you let that defenseless old lady take you down, when all she had in her hands was a Bible? A Bible, he said. She told me she had an axe and two 38s. <laughs> On a more serious note, the author, Tony Campolo, wrote this, i read it. Too many times, women are made to feel they should apologize for being mothers and housewives. In reality, such roles are noble callings. When I was on the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania, he writes, we had gatherings from time to time in which the faculty members brought their spouses. Inevitably, some woman lawyer would confront my wife with the question, and what is it that you do, my dear? He says, My wife is one of the most brilliantly articulate individuals I know, and so had worked out a grand response for these questions. I am socializing two homo sapiens in the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian religion in order that they might be instruments for the transformation of the social order in the teleologically prescribed utopia inherent in the Eschaton. (laughs) In other words, I'm raising, I'm a mum raising two kids who are going to make an impact on their world. And when she followed that with the question, and what is it that you do? The other person's, I'm a lawyer, didn't seem significant after all. So today we want to honour mums and grandmas. Who else in the course of a workaday week would be called upon? to be a nurse, a counsellor, a teacher, a social worker, a psychologist, a coach, a gardener, a chauffeur, a project executive, a crisis manager, a police officer, a judge, and be able to pull it off with grace and excellence day after day and then in the evening have the energy to transform into both a beauty queen and a gourmet cook. Lisa Alpha was right when she said, Any mum could perform the duties of several air traffic controllers with ease. If you're a mum or a grandma, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or if you're a husband or a grandpa, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so, before we get into our message this morning, I just want to spend a moment honoring the mums and the grandmas And actually, all of our women. Did you know women have a very special place in God's heart? And let me make it personal. Ladies, you have a very special place in God's heart. God knew that Adam couldn't make it on his own. And so he sent Eve, to be his helper, his his heir. And what that means isn't his domestic, his cleaner, his laundry lady. It means his military ally, ally, sorry, who deploys strong and significant resources that turns and wins the battle. It's a title that God used for himself in the title Ebenezer when he thundered against the Philistines and won the battle. The first person to prophesy in the Old Testament was a woman, Moses' sister, Miriam. When no man go into the battle, it was Deborah who became a fearless warrior and led Israel to victory. And then, for good measure, it was another woman that drove the tent peg through the fleeing commander's head. Joel promised that God would pour out his Spirit on men and women. In the New Testament, the first person the angel visits is a woman. The first person the Holy Spirit came upon was a woman. And the first person to prophesy in the New Testament was a woman, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Jesus made the revolutionary move of welcoming and including women amongst his followers. Judas took from the purse, but the women supported Jesus from their own resources. Did you know the greatest giver in the New Testament was a woman? the widow who put her might into the offering. And did you know that the most extravagant and abandoned worshipper in the New Testament was a woman? The one that broke the alabaster box of ointment over Jesus' feet. It was to a woman that Jesus first revealed his Messiahship, the woman at the well. Women were the last at the cross, Women were the first at the tomb. After he rose from the dead, Jesus hid from the men disciples and revealed himself to a woman, Mary Magdalene. The first witness of the resurrection was a woman and the first preacher of the resurrection was a woman. Women were present on the day of Pentecost. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit in the upper room, which, by the way, belonged to a woman, John Mark's mother. And it was in her home that the early church used to meet and pray. Matthew Henry says, If man is the head of creation, woman is the crown upon that head. Dr. Trapp says she's spun from finer stuff. And today, I want us to look at the life of a woman and a mother. From the Old Testament, her name is Hannah. She became the mother of Samuel. And even though she lived 3,000 years ago, nevertheless, she has lessons to teach us in the 21st century. Her name, Hannah, means grace, and her grace story Is found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So if you turn with me there, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm going to be jumping about, so we're going to put the reading on the wall behind me. And uh, then you won't have to try and find out where I'm going. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 1. There was a man named Elkanah, and he lived in Ramah, verse 2. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. Verse 5. And though Elkanah loved Hannah, Peninnah would taunt her and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Each time Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Verse 9. Once, after a sacrificial meal in Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli, the priest, was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle, and Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son... I will give him back to you, and he'll be yours for his entire lifetime. Verse 12, as she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her, and seeing her lips moving, but hearing no sound, he thought she'd been drinking. Verse 15, oh no, sir, she replied, I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I am very discouraged. I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman. I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have made of him. And then she went back and began to eat again. She was no longer sad. The entire family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. Then they returned home to Ramah. And the Lord remembered Hannah's plea. And in due time, she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I asked him of the Lord. There are three lessons in this story that's very familiar to us. The title of my message today is From Despair to Joy. And the first lesson we learn from Hannah is the reality of her pain. The reality of her pain. Hannah's life was far from a bed of roses. She was married to a loving and wealthy husband. She was financially secure. She lived in a large country home, and yet deep in her heart, there was hurt beyond bearing. As I was looking at this chapter, I counted five thorns that were stuck in Hannah's heart. Let me mention them to you. The first is in verses 5 and 7. It said, the Lord had kept her from having children. Hannah wanted a baby with all her heart, but she'd been barren for many years. Here's the second thorn in her heart. Verse 6 tells us her rival taunted her and made fun of her. Hannah was one of two wives. The other was called Penina. And Penina could have children, but Hannah couldn't. And Penina took great advantage of that to make Hannah's life a bitter misery. Here's the third thorn. Verse 7 she wouldn't eat. Verse 10. She was in deep anguish and kept crying bitterly. Hannah was probably suffering from some sort of emotional illness, maybe depression or melancholia. Here's the next one. It's not specifically mentioned in the text, but back then, a woman that couldn't have children was seen as somewhat defective and a bit of an outcast from society, and the other women would actually shun her. And so, as well as having misery inside her home, Hannah would also have misery inside her community, because she would have been isolated, and made to feel shame, and even guilt. Because they all believed that God was punishing her for some unseen and unknown sin. And then, fifthly, as though this wasn't enough, even her priest got the wrong idea. He thought she was a drunk. Her pastor misunderstood her. Barren, taunted, sad, isolated, misunderstood. This was Hannah's lot. Let's stop there. Because even though today is Mother's Day and it's a great celebration, I know of some girls that won't come to church on Mother's Day because it's just too painful. Maybe you've lost your mum this year, and that's painful. It's interesting, as we were coming along, the, grave, uh, the, the graveyard that we passed, uh, Greenacres, was full of cars, people visiting their mums. They were giving away carnations just as a blessing, which I thought was a great touch. Maybe you'd love to be a mum, but so far that hasn't happened. Maybe you are a mum, but your family have grown and away and too scattered and full of busyness and life to remember you. Maybe you're a single girl that would love to be married, but Mr. Wright hasn't swept you off your feet. Or maybe you once were married, and you've gone through the pain and rejection of a separation or a divorce. Whatever the details are, I know that amid the celebration and the happiness and the donuts and the coffee and the carnations, which, by the way, was a great way to be welcomed this morning. I even got one. I know that there's pain in some people's hearts. And yet, it wasn't the whole story. You know what? It never is the whole story. There are two bright lights in the dark night of Hannah's life. And the first bright light was in verse 5. Her husband loved her very much. And the second bright light was that her God knew all about her. It says actually it was the Lord who kept her from having children. Now that might appear to be a little bit heartless, but this is Bible talk. This is Hebrew speak. For her barrenness was under the sovereignty of God. And God knew all about it. You know what? God knows all about each of us too. There's nothing in our lives that is outside his control or his love. And just as he knew all about Hannah, he knew all about her disappointment month after month. God saw her bury her face into a pillow night after night. He heard her sobbing when nobody else in the house did. When she managed to hide everything from others, she couldn't hide it from the Lord. He knew all about her and he knows all about you and me too. So whatever it is that you've come here with today, I want to say the Lord knows all about it. I don't think it's an accident that you're listening to this message because God wants to reach in and touch you and bring healing and bring hope. It's interesting, isn't it? The very first thing Jesus said he'd come to do was heal the brokenhearted. Well, that's the first thing, the first lesson was the reality of her pain. But there's another lesson here, and this is the power of her prayers. You know, Christopher Reeve, who Newsweek magazine once described as ridiculously good-looking, was the actor who played Clark Kent or Superman in the four Superman movies made between 1978 and 1987. But in May 1997, after a freak riding accident that detached his skull from his spine, Christopher Reeve became a quadriplegic. And yet he persevered despite his pain and made somewhat of a recovery. He never did walk again, but emotionally he came to terms with his condition. And actually, he turned it to a positive end because he became an advocate for spinal injuries and also a motivational speaker. One of his punchlines links in with our story. And this is what he would tell his audiences. Pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. You can't avoid pain, but you can avoid joy. Let me say that again. Pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. You can't avoid pain, but you can avoid joy. What he hit upon was that critical truth of the importance of our response to the challenges and disappointments that life throws at us. Ella Wilcox Put it like this. One ship drives east and the other west by the selfsame winds that blow. But it's the set of the sail and not the gale that determines the way they go. It's not the winds that blow in our life. It's our response to them. It's how we set our sail. It's what we allow them to do to us. And they'll either wreck us or blow us further on our journey. You know, there are four classic responses to pain in our lives. But only one of them will help us. Let me mention what what they are. Some people choose to nurse their pain. And they become a victim. For these people, life is one big pity party with me at the centre. Some people choose to curse their pain, and they allow it to make them angry. These people become bitter and twisted. A third group rehearse the pain. They make it their identity, and it's the subject of every conversation. And those three responses, all they will do is get us deeper and deeper into the hole nurse it, curse it, rehearse it. And the fourth response, the positive one, is to disperse it. And as we do that, we'll get free. That might be to forgive somebody. That might be to overlook an offense. That might be to let something go that was so unjust and so undeserved. But unless we do, it will kill us. And Hannah learned how to disperse her pain. Let's look at how the scripture tells us what she did. In verse nine, she enters the tabernacle. Now there's a good choice. Rather than taking what's wrong and what's hurting to our neighbor or to ourselves, let's take it to God. She enters the tabernacle. Verse 10, she prays and weeps. She gives it to God. Verse 11, she asks God to remember her. Verse 12, she continues praying before the Lord. Verse 15, she tells Eli she's been pouring out her soul before the Lord. And in verse 7, it infers that she's done it year after year. Hannah dispersed her pain by bringing the punishing disappointment of being barren into God's presence. And you know what? That's actually what prayer is. It's inviting God into our circumstances. It's handing over to him the burdens that we carry. So we don't have to carry them anymore. Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's a fair exchange, isn't it? Rest instead of weariness, a light yoke instead of a crippling burden, freedom instead of bondage, problems that are no longer my responsibility, but his But it can only happen as we make a choice to bring our stuff and lay it at the cross. I remember years ago, a preacher, he, he had a plastic bag, a black rubbish bag. And he said, you know what? This is like our lives. We carry around our problems with us. And, and it, they, they stink and they're, they're not nice to have around and they're heavy. And then we get the revelation to come to the cross and we dump it at the cross and we tell the Lord about it. Then we pick it up again and just take it with us instead of leaving it there with him. Things change when God's in the picture. You know, some years ago I was playing a game with my three little grandchildren. They were little then. The oldest six foot three now. He didn't get that from my gene pool. <laughs> anyway, we were, playing, we were playing a game and we, we had a, a piece of paper and we were drawing each drawing on it. So I drew a house and Simeon put windows in it. And then Chloe put nice curtains at the windows, nice girl touch. And then Ezra put some flowers in the yard. And then I took it, and then I, I put a pathway in. And then, then Simeon, he drew an army tank in the yard. And then Chloe, I mean, she added some nice birds in the trees. And then it was Ezra's turn, and, and he got his crayon, and remember, he drew a big cross in it. And they all said, Ezra, you've spoilt it. He said, no, no. He said, no, I haven't. I've just brought God into it. Do you know what? The picture changes when you bring God into it. Your circumstances can change when you bring God into them or you bring them to God. So the reality of her pain, the power of her prayers, and thirdly, the certainty of her provision. a Welshman lived in an apartment block in England and fell in love with one of his neighbours and he wanted to marry her with all his heart. But they quarreled and they'd gone their separate ways and he was shy and he was reluctant to actually approach her again and try and repair the breach. Instead of that, he wrote a letter to her every week and pushed it under her door. This went on for 42 years. Eventually, he summoned up the courage, knocked on her door, and asked her to become his wife. And to his surprise and absolute delight, she consented. And so, at 74, they were married when their relationship had started over four decades before. Now, here's the kicker. He wasted almost half a century when, if only he'd asked, he would have got his answer. Don't make his mistake with bringing your problems to God. If you only ask... He will answer. One of the definitions of prayer is asking God. And 20 times in the Bible, this promise is attached to that definition. And it shall be given you. Jesus, who is an economist with words, repeats it 20 times because he really, 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 really wants us to live under the blessing of asking God and seeing him make a difference. Let, let's see what happens when Hannah comes and brings her pain to God and asks him to make a difference. First, he changes Eli's mind. He realizes he's misjudged her, that she isn't a, a loose woman, she isn't a drunkard, but she's an emotional Pain. By the way, never make snap judgments on people who look to be in pain because we never know the full picture. Only He knows the full picture. Next, she's set free from her sadness. In verse 18, it says Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You know, sometimes God's answers to our prayers are things he does inside of us, not just around us. He changes us as an answer to our prayer before he changes the circumstances that we are praying about. Thirdly, she finds assurance and freedom. Verse 19, she rises up early and she worships the Lord. Notice the shift. She's no longer focused on her problem. She's focused on God. And fourthly, in due time, notice that, in due time, Hannah conceives and bears a son, and she names him Samuel. You know, God's got a perfect time to answer our prayers and to give us our heart's desire. Trust him with that time. It's when he knows best, not when we think it's best. And what a special child he was. The last of the judges, the first of the prophets. And then, as a little PS, not only does God give her Samuel, he gives her five other children into the bargain. You know, that's who God is. It seems to be nothing, 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 nothing. And then suddenly there's a breakthrough and there's a flood of blessing. Well, that's 3,000 years ago. What about today? Well, God does it still today. We spent two years in northern Manitoba in, uh, in the park um, a few years ago. A very rich time for us. And uh, there were two people in our church who longed for children with all their hearts. Try and Meredith. And Christmas 2016, Meredith came to see Val and I and said after many years of trying i'm pregnant and she actually gave testimony in our christmas service and then over the holidays tragedy happened and she lost the baby and they were absolutely devastated anyway we kept on praying and they kept on looking to the lord two years later it was time for us to leave a new pastor was coming and as we were packing our U-Haul to come back down to Winnipeg, the phone rang and it was Meredith. And she said, I just want you to know I'm pregnant again. And this time, things went to turn and Kai was born. God does it today. We have three children, but after the first... Some of the best doctors in England told Val, you won't have any more children. But when God goes into the family planning business, it's never to stop children. It's always to give them. Our church prayed for us, and one guy, he had some challenges, some social challenges, but he said, I, I can see a picture and in this picture there's, there's, it, there's a bird's nest and in the nest there's three eggs and I think God's going to give you three children. That's boast, boasting. We had one and the doctor said, you won't have any more. But in time, grace was born and in time, David was born and God was true to his word Because what he did then, he does now. Again, some of the best doctors in Vancouver told a couple who were our friends, you'll never be able to have children. They moved from Vancouver to Winnipeg. Some people in the church prayed for them. And lo and behold, how many do they have now? Three? Now they have three children. Because that's who God is. And if you are having problems conceiving, we'd like to pray for you this morning because that's who God is. God is a father. And a father loves children. And if your difficulty might not be conceiving, it might be some other problem, bringing it to Jesus can make such a difference. So, Hannah... The reality of her pain, the power of her prayers, and the certainty. Search-